This is the Square Peg Podcast, starring Andrew Lawrence and a cast of mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And now, here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destinations the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The Needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasoans. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Science are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com, on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. My guest today is a native of the Washington, D.C. area. He's an Ivy League-educated, retired small business owner, a connoisseur of the underhood workings of fine European automobiles, and a martial artist. Oh, and he's also blind. David Hoyle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I've been thinking for a while about having you and uh, eventually we'll have your wife on but i found your story in life to be an, an interesting one that uh, i think uh, our listeners are going to be able to grab uh, take a lot from now you i understand were born in tennessee but you grew up in maryland is this correct uh yes pretty much uh well i don't know not exactly i was born in tennessee which is true but uh i guess i grew up in Maryland, Pennsylvania, then Maryland, more or less. Okay, so how old were you when you moved from Tennessee? I don't know. I don't really remember anything until I was probably pushing four, and I was living in a small town in northern uh, northern Maryland for a year while I guess my dad had just moved to a new job uh, uh, in uh, working in the aircraft industry in, uh, in that town, and then we moved to just the other side of the border into Pennsylvania after that. And so were you, my understanding is you were born uh, almost completely blind? I was, yeah, I was born in what was called, what back then they referred to as partially sighted, legally blind, uh, which means my vision was pretty, you know, pretty much stank. And was there ever, uh, uh, ever any attempt to correct it, or was it, uh, did you just kind of accept things as they were you know, and move along? Well, it was non-operable. Uh, it, glasses really didn't do any good. So there was really not much to do about it. Uh, I did not know I was partially sighted until I got to first grade. Uh, I assumed my parents had to have known. I mean, it was would have been obvious to to an adult. But uh, and I walked into fir- first grade and discovered it by that afternoon that I really couldn't see as well as anybody else. Well, you uh, there's a name for the condition that, that caused your blindness, correct? Uh, yes, it's uh, retinitis pigmentosus, choke pigmentosa, and uh, I have somewhat of a non-classical version of it. Most of it is uh, extremely hereditary, and mine is not. Okay, and so you mentioned something about walking into first grade. Where, was this regular uh, Maryland or Pennsylvania public schools? or were Yes. You... Yes, as I said, I didn't, I didn't know I was partially sighted until then. Um, I... Being a cautious individual, I sat in the back of the classroom and after a very short period of time realized I couldn't see anything on the board that everybody else could see. Well, I'm going to assume uh, 
I'm sorry for interrupting, Dave. Maybe I just assume that you're, well, let's put it this way. When was it discovered that you couldn't see or that you were blind? I don't know. I, like I said, I assume my parents had to have known it, but they never, never told me about it. I mean, I remember as a little kid, uh, I'd be sitting eight inches in front of the TV set, whereas my brother and younger sister uh, would be sitting on the sofa, you know, six feet away. Uh, that didn't, you know, to a four-year-old brain, that didn't register as anything overwhelmingly significant. And the pediatrician visits didn't didn't uh, detect anything. I, like I said, I adults had to have known, but they never told me. Do you think that was purposeful? I assume so. And so you show up to first grade in regular public school. Where uh, where was this in in uh, Northern Maryland? You in, said? In Pens- in Pennsylvania, a and, small town in Pennsylvania. So, at what point did you begin to receive uh, services uh, for that accommodations, if you will, for your educational purposes? Well, back then they used the special services were, I guess, somewhat scarce on the ground. Uh, basically, the first thing I got that really mattered to me was I got something called talking books, which is something done by the. Uh, Library of Congress, where they recorded uh, books for blind people, and you could order the books, and they'd send them to you by mail, and they were played on record players, and uh, you know you could start reading all sorts of books, and that was you know my my big thing. I even as a little kid, I liked to have stories read to me, and I discovered very quickly that I liked to read. Was and, what? Uh, what kind of services were available to you uh, through the school at the time uh, to make accommodations? Uh, they put me in the front of the class. I, my desk was right next to the teacher's desk, and I still couldn't see the board. So that was that was pretty much, other than what the teacher could do as an individual, that was the extent of the accommodation. And that was about the extent of special education services in, in the 1950s? Yeah, at least what I got of them. Well, at some uh, point, I mean, they did, they did have schools for the blind back then, but you know that meant you know moving away and living away from home, and nobody ever mentioned those to me as a possibility. So, you know, it was you know beyond my worldview. Well, and it's did at some point did that become a reality for you, or uh, take me through yes, that? Yes, yes, it did. T- t- tell me uh, about that. Well, let's see. Um, I'm not quite sure why my parents sent me to the Maryland School for the Blind. I was, I was actually turned into a fairly good student. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought I was doing pretty well in school, excluding French. Um, and, uh, you know, um, I guess starting in the eighth grade, uh, I'm not sure why, but my mother got a dinner bonnet about I wasn't getting educated enough. And uh, if I didn't do better, uh they were going to send me to some uh, you know, some terrible school where you had to work all day long, and you know, it was described as pretty miserable. And uh, I guess I didn't live up to their standards because the next thing I knew, I was at the Maryland School for the Blind. And were you already reading? The eighth grade. Were you reading Braille yet? Um, no. By then, I guess in seventh grade, when I moved to Virginia, which was just right across the border from Maryland where I lived at the time. Um, I got, uh, 
I started getting uh, some special education uh, instruction, and they taught me Braille, uh, and they tried out a bunch of different magnifiers and so forth to see if they couldn't get me where I could really read print, which never really worked. So I mean, the best I could do with print is give me a half hour, I could read the page of print, and then I needed a, a day off to recover from the headache. Wow. Um, and as far as Braille went, uh, Braille is really easy to learn conceptually, but it's very hard to learn to read it fast. It takes just you know, years and years of practice for most people to learn to read it at any kind of a speed. And basically back then I didn't have really much motivation to learn to read Braille fast because there's nothing academically to read in Braille in my public schools. You know, they did have some, you know, Braille textbooks, but those were textbooks, you know, out of all the hundreds and hundreds of textbooks, you know, available in print, you know, you'd have maybe one Braille textbook and your school wasn't using that book. Right. So, uh, I never really had a lot of motivation to learn to read Braille. Uh, and I could still read Braille, and, but not fast enough to really do me any good for other than notes and stuff like that. Where is the Maryland School uh, for the Blind? It's uh, northern Baltimore. And so that was a residential, uh, obviously close enough. I'm, as you know, I'm familiar enough with the geography because I'm, I'm from northern Virginia. Um, I want to imagine northern Baltimore maybe an hour. If you were living in northern Virginia, um, on a, I know on a Saturday morning with no traffic, you can make it from Tyson's Corner to, to downtown Baltimore in about an hour. Is it, was that about? Uh, yeah, what it, and, I, and, 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 and by that point, I'd moved back to Maryland again, so I was living in uh, Rockville. Okay. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it was about an hour away. Uh, so that wasn't, you know, they actually, for for me, they actually bust us home every weekend. So we, we stayed there during the week. And uh, going to the Maryland School for the Blind was a, I don't know, it was a real trip, at least at first. Uh, I had never been around another partially sighted or blind person until I went there. Uh, I'd never met one. Uh what was it like meeting somebody who shared some of the, your similar challenges? Well, I guess the first, I mean, this, this was, I guess, kind of a, a significant experience in my life in, in a fairly uh, fairly unusual manner. Um, at first, going to the school, it was a very, it was right out of the Dickens novel, at least at first. Um, it, um, and that was more emotional than in reality, Um very much so, but I, the, you know, the first time I showed up at, at, at the school, it was uh, at night on the winter's, you know, winter's night after dark, and uh, I you know, went to my dorm, which was a hundred-year-old three-story building, um, and uh, which would happen to be painted suicide blue with a lot of wood that was, uh, had been varnished so many times it was just solid black. And uh, it, to at least some people with partial sight, something like that is about the most depressing image you can imagine. Um, Rather institutional? Very sensitive to, you know, very, a, a, blind per, a partially sighted person can be very sensitive to lighting. And right. it was, the emotional impact of that was, was truly horrendous. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, it took me months and months to get used to that. And then the next morning, I showed up to what they called chapel, which was full of a 
100, 150 blind people, um, a number, quite a number of which were engaged in what we refer to as blindisms. Talk about um, blindisms. I haven't heard that term before. Well, you probably, other than me, never will hear that term again. But uh, a blindism were behaviors that blind people tended to get into. And a lot of them were of a self-stimulating nature. I mean, you take a vision away from somebody and you've lost the majority of your input, a normal person's input. And uh, so a lot of blind people would rock back and forth when they were standing, rub their eyes, fiddle with their hands. Uh, you know, I walked into a, a, a basically an auditorium with 150 people, maybe 75 or so people were engaged in what I thought of as fairly bizarre behaviors. Uh, it was almost like being in a standing in a field of uh, of grain during the wind, <laughs> um, and it. Uh, David, you know, after about. Go ahead. I guess I never really thought about that until you said the word blindism, but I do know that um, Gallaudet University in, in Washington, D.C. is, is an all-deaf all or hearing-impaired university, and I know that uh, deaf culture, uh, the deaf people are hard of hearing, uh, have their literally their own culture. Uh, it would sound, it, like I said, it didn't even occur to me until you said the word blindism. Is there a similar situation among the, the blind community, uh, a, a culture all its own, if you will? Well... Not to the extent of deaf people. I mean, because when it really comes down to it, when it comes down to just quality of input or, you know, whatever, I don't know, let's not call it quality of input, quantity of input, you know, vision, you know, is outweighs hearing. But when it comes down to social interaction, which is truly, truly, you know, critical for a human being, um, Blindness is a much less severe disability than deafness. That's interesting. Now, with all of the limitations and and uh, what sounds uh, to some extent to be maybe an institutional nature of the Maryland School for the Blind, obviously you got a, a good enough education because you were accepted to and, and eventually graduated from uh, an Ivy League school in New Haven, Connecticut, well, right? Um, yes. Um uh, Despite my initial impressions of the Maryland School for the Blind, it was actually an amazing institution. Um, now, I was, of course, looking at it as a as a teenager, and it's possible my views of it would be notably different. Say, if I were to experience it, you know, as an adult at this point in my life, maybe say as a teacher or something. Um, but it, I got a top-notch education. I got a lot of very directed instruction from teachers and you know, extracurricular you know, experiences and also out-of-school you know, interactions with the teachers and other adults. It actually proved to be a very nurturing uh, institution. Well, and at least as a kid, I didn't even see it as being, um, you know, Lord, uh, condescending. Well, Dave, 
if if your high school experience was one that obviously because it was it was school dedicated to people who had your similar challenges, uh, tell me about what it was like studying at Yale um, with your limitations and uh, not being able to see. Well, I guess the first thing was a culture shock. Uh, it even though I was from a you know very solidly you know middle class you know household living in actually probably what would have to be called an upper middle class neighborhood. And I you know, had a good education. Going to an Ivy League, Ivy League school was a whole nother, a whole nother universe. I mean, you know, you're dealing with people that went to Exeter and Andover, and um, it, uh, you know they were, you know, they were. A lot of them, you know, both had wealth, you know, came from wealth and uh, you know long, you know, long pedigrees of education and so forth. Uh, and it was a it was a, a real shock in many ways. So we're talking about the late nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies. Correct. And obviously, you know, two decades plus pre uh, Americans with Disabilities Act. What kind of accommodations were available to you uh, at Yale well, during that time? They were they were very willing to make accommodations. Um, it. For a blind person going to school back then, and a blind person say going to school today, it's it's a whole nother. It's it's. I'm not even sure how you could compare the two. Um, you know, when I went to school, the height of technology for a blind person was a recorder, a voice voice recorder. That was it, and that had been it ever since you know I was a child. I mean, talking books uh, in college, you know, you'd have I'd have readers, uh, you know, read me books. And a lot of them might have them read it on tape so I could listen to it later and listen to it sped up. Um, it, uh, you know, so I could read faster. Now, David, um, the, the term card catalog probably doesn't mean much to anybody under the age of maybe 25 or 30. What, what would you do uh, if you're doing research in, a, in the big university library and you needed to, to find out where to find something? How, how does that work? Well, you have to get somebody to look through the card catalog. It, um, it, uh, so you, you just have to kind of rely on people to help you. Yes. I mean, at one point, I remember walking through the Yale, their main library. I forget what it was called or whatever, but it was all of this uh, Gothic architecture, this very, very, very elaborate multi-story building. And my fantasy was you give me enough money, and what I'd do is I'd just burn the place down. <laughs> Because there were all these, all this stuff in the library, and I couldn't utilize it. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just, it was almost that. It was, it was. I could touch it, but I couldn't use it. Right. Um, so I said, the, you know, the voice recorder was uh, was really about the extent of uh, uh, the technology that really did a blind person any good in an educational environment. And you ended up um, you ended up graduating with a degree in philosophy, if I'm not mistaken. A philosophy and psychology. Yeah, it was a it was a joint joint degree. Any particular yeah. discipline or, or period of, of philosophy? Well, I guess first of all, I was I did not treat college very seriously. Um, I mean, it. Uh, it you drank too much. I, I could. <laughs> I pardon. You partied too much. No, I just goofed off too much. Yeah. I, mean, I guess you could say I partied too much too. It was, uh, it was, uh, you know, frankly, drugs and rock and roll, and you know, it was, it, it went along with. I mean, I, I, I did actually get some education out of college, despite my uh, 
lack of effort I put into it. I mean, it's one thing about going to a school like that while you're sitting around, you know, getting high with your buddies. You're also discussing, you know, literature and, uh, right, right. you know, philosophy or whatever. Wait, uh, so they know, weren't so really drugs. They were just uh, education enhancers. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm not sure I would go that far. But I, but I do know that uh, I guess something that uh, you know it when I went there you didn't see much in the way of alcohol really um, you know, what you saw was marijuana and you saw some other things I mean the really rich kids had uh, cocaine um, and back then it was an extremely expensive drug apparently so only the really rich kids had cocaine and then there were some LSD on the weekends but for the most part it was marijuana and you just didn't see much in the way of alcohol. Well, David, I'm, and, uh, I'm really anxious to kind of get on and, and learn about the okay. next the next chapter of your life. But before we do that, this is the point where we take a little bit of a break from our conversation, and, and uh, I, I get to ask you a question that you're not expecting. And there are only two rules. You have five seconds to answer, and your answer cannot be Donald Trump. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. So, David, who is it right now that you know of who's in the news, who's making headlines, uh, who's getting a lot of airtime, television, Internet, radio, what have you, who really doesn't deserve it, somebody who's a bit of a, a moron, a bit of a jackass, somebody who uh, is in the news for all the wrong reasons. You have five seconds, and your answer cannot be Donald J. Trump. Go. Mitch McConnell and Bill Barr. Well, Mitch Barr McConnell Mitch McConnell and Bill Barr are our jabronis of the week. Our jabroni of the week is brought to you by the Cardenas Law Firm. Finding an attorney can help. Finding an attorney to help you with your legal issues can be rough. How do you find an effective and honest attorney without sacrificing your financial health? The Cardenas Law Firm breaks the mold by offering exceptional service without breaking the bank. Find them online at www.cardenaslawfirmllc.com or by calling 575-650-6003. Don't call some jabroni lawyer at some jabroni law firm. Call the Cardenas Law Firm. So anyway, Dave, you graduate college uh, with a joint degree or a double major, if you will, in uh, philosophy and psychology. Uh, what's your next move? Well, you don't really do much with philosophy and psychology as a joint degree. <laughs> so my next move was, uh, oh, heavens. I guess basically my next move is I just kind of fell into the auto repair industry. And uh, it, uh, I guess I found out I, it wasn't, it was in its own way quite interesting. And I was reasonably good at doing what I did within it. Well, uh, and I did, did that for a couple, a couple, of, excuse me, a couple of decades or so. Well, so I'm, this is this is the one of the things I find most interesting about you, David, because uh, I know that, and, and we'll talk in a few minutes about how you worked uh, in in auto repair and as a service advisor for your family business, dealing with high end uh, English cars or European cars. Uh, how does somebody uh, who can't see learn about the workings, uh, the mechanical workings of of anything, uh, much less uh, high end cars? Well, now everybody has, I guess, their own way of wanting to deal with that. Um, a lot of people would be very much into touchy-feely, you know, I mean, in the sense that, well, this is what something looks like. Um, and my interest in cars was, I guess you could call it academic in the sense, or abstract in the sense that what I did and actually what I enjoyed doing was, I guess, being a conduit. You know, I was a conduit between the, the customer and the, uh, 
the technician. And what I needed to do was to understand both of those individuals in kind of an abstract you know, manner, um, you know, the, the customer and the, and the technician. And I had to know enough about vehicles that, that I could communicate between the two. But also, being rather analytical, I wanted to know enough about vehicles that I could, uh, um, I guess, participate with the technician in the uh, diagnostic process. And I actually turned out to be a, a very good automotive diagnostician. You know, you give me a series of symptoms, a series of, uh, of uh, what do you want to say, uh, a series of data as to what's been explored and what has yet to be explored in, in tracking down a, a problem, an automotive problem. And I proved to be very good at it. And uh, my technicians actually got to where they respected my knowledge a lot. Uh, but yet you could show me, you, know, you could beat me over the head with a carburetor and I maybe wouldn't recognize it for what it was. And uh, that's I knew so- all about how it worked, but I didn't really care what it looked like. And see, somebody like me who's not mechanically inclined at all, I can tell you that carb- or that fuel injectors replaced carburetors uh, maybe 30, 35 years ago, but I couldn't tell you what either one of them looks like, other than the f- and, and, or either what one of them does, other than the fact that it has something to do with getting fuel uh, into the engine. But is this something that, was your family in the auto business growing up? Is this something that you were exposed no. to? How did you no, learn? Not at all. It, it was just something. The only way I was exposed to it, and I would, you know, <laughs> I guess you want to say rejected it vigorously, was uh, my father was a pilot during two wars, and he was a aircraft engineer after that. Uh, and one of his hobbies was he liked playing with automobiles, and I very much didn't like playing with automobiles. Um, and for you know some reasons, I mean, one of my re- re- my memories of why I didn't want playing with automobiles was the way you hung out with my father playing with automobiles. Was you first held the the uh, the light so he could see what he was doing, and you were expected to learn by observing. Uh, I couldn't learn by observing, and so holding a light for somebody was about as boring as I could imagine. Um, well, did he at least articulate to you what he was doing while he was doing it? Pardon? Did he at least articulate to you what he was doing as he was doing it? Uh, not in a way that was meaningful to me, at least. <laughs> well, <laughs> and and so I had a pretty much of a, of a my my concept of automobiles was kind of downer in some ways. Well, it's at some point <laughs> you're working for your family business, and my understanding is the Tyson's Corner location is a mere several blocks from where I actually had my first job that I began as a 13-year-old in December of 1987 at a place called Pizza Movers, which I remember, I can still remember the address. It was 8453Q Tyco Road in Tyson's Corner. And you guys were just down yeah. the road on Spring Hill Road, correct? Correct. I could have, even I probably could have thrown a baseball to where you were working because I think I know it was in the... Uh, the uh, warehouse complex immediately behind the one I was in. Right, right. And, yeah, there was a little industrial area there, industrial complex. Now, at this time, you you ended up, uh, were lucky enough to meet a very special woman you spent a couple decades with. Tell me about that. Well, we met in a way, I guess most people do, totally by chance. And uh, it was, uh, 
Um, after I came to terms with the fact that uh, she was quite a bit younger than me, um, we we got together, and at one point I hired her, and uh, I basically found that she was, uh, besides being a person that I very much liked, you know, outside of work, I found quickly found out that she was, for the most part, self-taught, but an amazing automotive technician, uh, and also just extremely good with customers, I mean, better than me, and I had been doing it for a decade or so by then, and she was just some, you know. 22-year-old kid. <laughs> well, and the two of you, the two of you ended up opening up your own shop uh, out in Sterling, well, right? Well, we moved her. Basically, she was still, I guess, 23 years old when we um, we bought another. Uh, we bought a um, what do you call it? A uh, a bay a, a bay in a uh, in an, uh, in a warehouse out near Dallas Airport, and uh, we opened up a. Uh, another shop there and basically we threw her in as manager she was 23 years old at the time and uh so she basically had the you know had the experience of starting a brand new auto auto repair shop I, you can't say i guess from scratch since you know it was attached to our reputation uh and somewhat associated to our uh our customer base um but you know basically we just Threw her out there and threw her to the wolves, and uh, everyone saw checked up on her. And it seems like it worked out. You guys it did work out. You guys were in business at that location from when until when? Well, they're still in business, um, but I uh, after about twenty or so years, uh, we uh, we left the business and uh, retired. Yeah, so uh, you guys you guys retired uh, what about ten years ago to the American Southwest? Um, yeah, I mean, we, yeah, we showed up in Cruces in the, when was it, I guess, in the, in the 2008 or something. And that, you know, that kind of leads me to the next thing I want to ask you about that I find very interesting. Uh, the way you and I know each other, the way you and, and your wife Sue and I know each other is from, uh, Gracie Baja Las Cruces, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I met you just about, well, three years ago this month. Now, I know that Sue uh, also is a black belt and an instructor in Taekwondo, and you actually started your martial arts training in Taekwondo. Is that correct? Yes. Now, I find that very interesting because, as, as I would say, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, as with really any other grappling martial art, would seem like the absolute best fit for somebody with your limitations because almost everything you do in training and in competition involves having your hands on another person. Um, not so with more traditional striking martial arts like taekwondo take me through how somebody who's not able to see like you is able to learn uh, and become a, a, a proficient practitioner of something like taekwondo well it was how i got into it was strictly by chance because what you say about jiu-jitsu is is most definitely true and given my background as a wrestler i mean jiu-jitsu is even a tighter fit um but taekwondo as I remember, we got into Taekwondo because we have to have a, a young teenage boy at the time that was acting like a young teenage boy at the time. And uh, we, after adult talks, decided that maybe he would benefit from the discipline of a martial art. So we all took Taekwondo because that's what was available. That was what was really, that was the martial art that was really hot at the time. And uh, so all three of us took it. 
And uh, as you pointed out, Sue got you know, stayed with it and got a lot more serious than I did. It was it was different. I mean, it uh, a lot of martial arts is uh, are doing forms, which are a bit of a challenge. And at the same time, you kind of wonder. You know, at least I did. You know, it's kind of like uh, take it or leave it. You know, the forms. I mean, you try to get good at them, and you try to you know look good while you're doing them. I enjoyed the sparring. Um, we did uh, light contact sparring in uh, in padded gear, in protective gear, which was kind of nice. Uh, some schools of Taekwondo just get close, which uh, I don't think I'd relate to very well as far as sparring goes. But it was a challenge. I mean, in, in sparring, it was a challenge. Like with a lot of things, you uh, you have to identify your where your compo- your opponent is. And in Taekwondo, since grappling wasn't uh, wasn't a um, an option. It was more just controlling, dis- trying to control distance, uh, basically for your protection more than anything. Uh, and I actually got fairly good at sparring. Um, well, as challenging as learning um, something like forms, uh, as somebody who can't see it, also as an, from an instructional standpoint, I understand, uh, and I know from experience, because you and I have trained together and I've watched you receive instruction and give instruction, but as a martial arts instructor, I would imagine uh, whoever whoever your your uh, instructors were, your masters and grandmasters, uh, had uh, their work cut out for them trying to figure out a way to teach something that 99.99% of their students are going to be able to absorb, not only through hearing you describe it, but also by watching you demonstrate. Um, now, I know uh, from experience, like I said, you and I trained together uh, when I first started training. Uh, I think Sue was helping coach the the daytime class, and you were always I, I don't want to call it the dummy, but whenever Sue or Professor would demonstrate uh, a technique, and pretty much how every class goes, you do a group warm up, and then you you demonstrate a technique three or four times, and then you you partner up and get to each each guy gets to do it a couple times, and then you move on to the next move. Um, I would imagine, I don't even, I'm now just starting to think this was probably by design, uh, the person upon whom uh, a professor or Coach Sue would demonstrate the move that they're going over would be you. And you would always be the person upon whom the move was demonstrated. And like I said, it just kind of occurred to me that that's probably by design and, and, a, and a better way for you to learn it because you can't see how it's being demonstrated, but you can feel. Is that kind of how exactly. it? Exactly. You're, you're exactly right. And uh, I took full advantage of that. And I, I, I referred to myself, uh, there's a, uh, a technical term which, after being off for all this time due to the coronavirus, I don't remember. Okay. okay. I was the okay. Oh, okay. I couldn't remember the name. I couldn't remember that term. Which is basically probably some foreign language for a practice dummy, which is <laughs> what I... Uh, what I thought of myself, I actually referred to myself as the dummy, but uh, yes, I mean that's uh, that's why I enjoyed, you know, why Sue would use me and why the professor would to a great extent, and you know I took you know total and shameless advantage of that. I mean, with the professor, I had a true expert using me to demonstrate techniques, and that was really quite a privilege. Um, it, uh, and Sue, too, for that matter, who's very technically proficient, but not at the professor's level. Um, and you are, and, you've been promoted to, uh, how long have you been a purple belt now? I don't remember. Uh, it, um, 
I guess I was a purple belt. I'm not even sure. But I think I do. I have. I guess I have one stripe as a purple belt. Um, and for those who aren't yeah. familiar with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, purple belt is is at the point where you you can first, I believe, be described as somebody being pretty pretty darn proficient. I mean, as a white belt, you know nothing. Uh, I think I had it was Sue who described to me becoming a blue belt, which is where I am, is basically graduating kindergarten. Um, but by the time you're a purple belt, you're pretty darn proficient, pretty darn dangerous, and, and should be pretty confident in your skills. Now, Dave, uh, I wanted to ask you if you can, if you can describe it, um, and I'm sure we could probably talk all day long about this. We, we talked a little bit before about you being an, a university student, uh, two decades or so before the passing of the Americans with Disabilities Act. How has your life changed, uh, and how has your ability to navigate the world changed uh, since the passing of the Americans with Disabilities Act? Well, the Americans with Disabilities Act affected people after me a lot more than me or maybe my generation in some ways. Um, the biggest thing that has affected me is... I no longer, and some of this has to do with basically just living in New Mexico, which is very ADA-friendly, but probably would be even without the ADA. I no longer have to hassle to take my guide dog into places. Um, And that was an issue before? The last time I had that issue, Uh, but it said... uh, you know, New Mexico is a very accommodating place for having a, a service animal. Um, but other than that, um, I guess the biggest impact it would have on me is the impact the ADA has had on making web, uh, um, requiring websites to be accessible. That was going to be um, my next. My next question was going to be: How do you internet? Uh, how does one internet as a as a non sighted person? Oh, the Internet is a uh, marvelous place for a blind person. Um, it, if, you're, if you can't use, uh, like, you know, large print, and you can, you know, there are ways to, um, if, you're, if you can partially sighted, they have things, uh, programs, which will make the text more legible and maybe also speak to you at the same time. But uh, you use what's called a screen reader, which is basically uh, synthetic speech in a program that, uh, uh, reads the text to you that's on the screen. Then uh, that's all quite accessible unless they're using graphics. And some websites and some programs do use graphics. In other words, it, the, the word it'll be a picture of the world word as opposed to the uh, word displayed in computer you know text. Is that a particular um, program that you have to buy? Is it embedded in the websites? How does that work? Well, if you use the Apple operating Apple computers, it's actually embedded in the uh, operating system. Uh, if you use Windows, there is an internationally developed free screen reading program now, which is very good. It was after my time when I started learning screen readers, so I use a paid one that I've used for a couple of decades now, I guess. But... Um, you know, basically, the internet and many programs are accessible to me. Apple has made the iPhone extremely accessible, and they've made the Mac computer uh, operating system extremely accessible. After decades, uh, after however many years it's been, I find that we finally got iPhones 
I guess about a year and a half ago, and I haven't really bothered to do a whole lot with it, but uh, I certainly can if I'm so inclined. So I just love modern technology. I mean, going to school now, there's just no comparison to what it was like when I went to school with the very limited technology that was at my disposal then. Uh, just no comparison at all. Yeah, you I know- would actually... Be- I would actually been a serious student with the tools I have today. <laughs> you know, Dave, I haven't haven't seen neither you nor Sue obviously since probably February, and I know you were dealing with an injury so at that time, so it may be even longer for you. Um, I actually do, you know, I'm I'm on on Facebook on social media probably more than I should be, and I know that Sue is on uh, about as much as I am, if not more. As she and I communicate in some form or fashion almost daily. Um, I know you guys have been very 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 strict about observing covid protocols pretty much haven't left the house since march is that correct well no we leave the house on a regular basis we just don't interact with people very closely on a regular basis we're out for walks and hikes all the time um and there's another family that takes basically is compatible with us as in the, the, the care they're taking with the virus, and we actually go with walks with them. We're outdoors. We're masked. Um, we don't – I think we've been in a store once in the last, what is it, maybe March 9th, March 6th, something like that, uh, and we were masked and tried to be very careful then. But um, we, we don't just sit around the house. Um, we try to stay outdoors, uh, you know, outdoors when anybody else is around. We try to stay masked, and we try to keep our our uh, our distance. So, you know, we yeah, we do take it very seriously, and uh, but we try to um, to um, we try to have a full life despite it. And other than jujitsu and the chiropractor, I mean, the virus hasn't really affected us and but those two are both serious impacts i mean sue just loves jujitsu to death i love it too but as you pointed out injuries are part of the game injuries well actually in this case it's probably more just age-related stuff that's finally catching up to me um you know five years ago i could go to toe-to-toe with a 20 year old um and now i mean not so much well i mean i I can go toe-to-toe with them. It's just that the price is long-term and more than I'm willing to pay. Right. Um, so, but, you know, so I, I've, had to, I've had to back off notably. And since a lot of my, in, a lot of my problems come down to my neck, uh, that really limits jiu-jitsu. Absolutely. And, and I did. <laughs> I, I have noticed. It's probably been even longer since you and I have trained together because uh, I've been out June, June of 2019. I went into my first tournament and came out of it with torn meniscus in my knee and had surgery a year ago this month and then ended up with a blood clot. And uh, I just got off blood thinners in August, so I, I could start training again. But uh, while I'm not as as strict as you and Sue are, uh, and I actually have to go to work every day, of course, I'm personally not comfortable getting on a mat with somebody uh, right now until there's a vaccine. So I, I haven't had an opportunity to train either. Dave, do you listen to any podcasts? Uh, No. No. You listen to Square Peg podcast, I don't, I don't right? watch TV. I don't. I mean, the uh, I I I, spend, I read and I I'm on the internet. I have zero social media. Well, uh, Dave, and that's strictly strictly because I just guess I have no interest in it because I know a lot of blind people are on Facebook and everything. 
Yeah. Well, you know what, David? I had I've had such fun talking to you. I've learned a lot of things about you that I didn't know before. And um, didn't know if you were aware, but you're actually the season finale for season one of the Square Peg podcast. And I really couldn't oh, think wow. of a I couldn't think of a better way to wrap up this season. I've been, you know, so interested and and so so thankful that everybody I have interviewed this season, which is uh, right around a dozen folks, I've met at least once. And when I say met at least once, I'm talking about one or two people I've met once. Everybody else I know fairly well, and, and it's just it's a good reminder that. Um, in some ways, I may have painted myself into a corner with coming up with a concept for this show uh, in that it, I've limited it to a, somebody who kind of has to fit certain certain characteristics. But I also feel very lucky that I know so many very interesting people. And so I want to thank you, David, for being on the show. Thank you for being my friend. Uh, and thank you for being our season finale. Well, thank you, Larry. It was, it was fun. We will air this episode on the lascrucestoday.com. It is on Apple Podcasts. And I want to thank everybody for listening to our show today. See you later, David. Goodbye. This has been an episode of the Square Peg Podcast, starring Andrew Lawrence and his cast of mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. Until then, we'll see you on the next Road Less Traveled? <laughs>